This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 249, Whole Life Takes How Long to Break Even? with Dan and Rebecca Proskauer. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Question for you. Do you fly your private airplane to buy your groceries at the grocery store? Or is it better just to get in your car and drive to the nearest grocery store? Easy question, right? So far. Next question. Do you find it's most efficient to take your bicycle cross country to the family reunion? Or do you get on an airplane? And these are Random weird questions, I realize, but it's going to make sense as we go through this episode today, which is crucial if you've ever asked the question, is whole life insurance worth it? Is it worth putting the money away, even though it takes years to break even? Dan and Rebecca Proskauer are my esteemed guests today, and they're going to tell their story of how they got caught in the middle of the tech bubble, and they were ready to retire right before they lost it all. Now, if you've ever wondered, what's the catch with this bank on yourself thing? You know, on these episodes, we talk quite a bit about the features, the benefits of this very compelling financial tool, bank on yourself. So what's the catch? We're going to be talking about how these policies take years to break even and why that's okay. This conversation really sparked from a conversation we were having on our membership site. And once again, if you've not joined our membership site, it's totally free. You can go to notyouraverage.mn.co and see the whole conversation, see what you're missing out on. Someone brought up a, a very real question. Hey, if this thing takes years to break even, how is this not a deal breaker for us? How is it still worth it, even though it takes years to break even? Dan Proskauer and his wife, Rebecca, are going to be talking about that exact question. So who is Dan? Dan Proskauer is the vice president of engineering at United Health Group's Optum Unit and has spent nearly 30 years as a professional in the semiconductor and healthcare industry space. He's an engineer by personality and by training and has always been fascinated by details and numbers. Dan has been a bank on yourself practitioner since mid 2009 and has started new policies as recently as last year. You guys are going to love getting to know Dan and his wife, Rebecca, and learn more about how long this thing takes to break even and whether or not it's worth it. So take it away. Dan and Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. All right. So those who are keen listeners of the podcast will recognize Dan. Dan Proskauer and Alan Ekstrand were on the episode 118, clear back to episode 118. Dan, you talked quite a bit about your net worth publicly on a podcast, and that makes you among rarefied human beings. <laughs> and we're going to get some more detail about not just your, your uh, financial life, but your personal life too, because you have your better half with us today. So welcome, Rebecca, to the show. And uh, I want to hear from you guys first. Tell us your story with money. How did that get started? What were some of the key transition points as a couple as you guys uh, navigated this thing called marriage and life? Well, do we want to start with even just the wedding? You were thinking ahead 
early on about saving and my parents paid a third, your parents paid a third and, and we contributed a third. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, you know, same thing when we bought our house, we've been saving for down payment. We borrowed some from my 401k, you know, each of our parents contributed a bit and, you know, we came up with a down payment that allowed us to purchase our house with 20% down, no PMI. And in fact, you know, Rebecca was working at the time, but she was also pregnant. And you know, we had talked about her staying home with the kids, at least for some period of time. And so we were careful not to take a bigger mortgage than we could handle on just my salary. Always been wanting to be in control of money, not have money be in control of us. Fantastic. Tell us, and for those that didn't hear it, I just want to hear from you, Dan, kind of a summary of what you discovered when you started Bank on Yourself as you began to track your net worth clear back to 1992. And from 1992 until 2009, tell us the story briefly there of kind of your financial journey and what was going on in the markets and your experience with preparing for retirement. Sure. So um, it was quite a roller coaster, so to speak. So back in, in 92, I graduated college. Fortunately, I had no debt. You know, I had a, a, some family money that from my great grandfather that paid for my tuition and and also I graduated with a clean slate just a $1000 of credit card debt left over from the last few months of partying in college I work in engineering so I I had good job prospects I had a pretty good salary at the time and I was able great to stock benefits well that was later well <laughs> and we'll get into the stock yeah too. so I was able to just live on my salary and as I got raises I was careful not to increase how much money I spent. Instead, I increased my savings. So I started by joining the, the retirement plan. And then the next raise, I joined the stock purchase plan. And the next raise, I opened a, you know account at Fidelity and had money automatically transferred from paychecks. And I started to invest in mutual funds and, and things. Got a little crazy at the in the late 90s, though. First, we had a big recession in like, what, 96, 97. And I had started to, like, I thought our company stock was undervalued. And I was worried about how to pay the mortgage sometimes. And every little scrap of extra money, I was buying stock, which looking back on it was a little bit crazy. But it worked out great because then the tech bubble hit and the company I was working at was in semiconductor manufacturing. So it got lifted on this giant wave of the tech bubble. You know, I had these dreams of, hey, I can retire when I'm 30. All we have to do is double our money two or three more times. And doubling your money was something that happened every few months sometimes back then. Of course, it didn't all work out that way. And, and I remember kind of vividly, I had some stock options that were available to exercise. And I was on my cell phone driving home. Like It was legal then to do that. And I was on the phone with Fidelity, like, well, do I want to do this now? Oh my God, it's all this paperwork, whatever. It's only 50 grand, you know, maybe I'll do it the ne next time other ones vest. And, you know, of course, in the next two weeks, the stock went down like 90%. So wow. it was. <laughs> so I, I don't have the ins and out of how everything works, but my big contribution is Dan would come home and he'd be like, we made this much money today. And I'd be like, did you sell anything? And he'd be no. I'm like, well, we made nothing. <laughs> That's such a wise question. <laughs> and, really and I think that started to 
I don't know. That started to take hold. It was a humbling question. I have to give Rebecca credit. You know, she understood how it worked before I did because <laughs> I still thought all this paper money was was actual money. And um, we we actually re we did a lot of construction on our house. We added a couple of bedrooms and stuff to our house. It was a big project, and we could have paid for it with all this stock money had we sold the stock. Instead, we you know, refinanced and stuff and have a bigger mortgage. And all the money that we could have used to pay for it disappeared in the crashing of the tech bubble. Looking in the past. Yeah, yeah. well, hindsight yeah. is hindsight. Yeah. 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 Market timing after it already happened is easy. So, yeah. you know, that tech bubble bursting, we lost plenty of money, but it didn't, I say lost. What it felt like was we didn't have this money and then out of nowhere we did. And then out of nowhere we didn't. Mm-hmm. So it didn't make, that big of an impression and coming out of that we continued as we were the financial crisis was a whole other ball game because between the tech bubble and getting to the financial crisis we had been very carefully saving money and investing all the ways you're supposed to and you know balancing things and dollar cost averaging and you know maxing out this and maxing out that and then when the financial crisis hit a lot of that money disappeared and it wasn't like that was money that we didn't have and just appeared and then went away. It was money we'd been carefully saving and was felt like it was ours and it went away. Mm. And that was for me, extremely unnerving. Mm-hmm. And even as we're recording this, the stock market's in the middle of collapsing again, or possibly at the beginning of collapsing or possibly at the end of collapsing. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Something. Yeah, we're, we're recording this in early May. And uh, as of the end of April, I had heard that the S&P 500 has had its worst four months start of the year since 1939. Yeah. And the NASDAQ's worst start ever since its initiation in the 70s. And, you know, we continue to see red on the screens. Now, you're right. The problem is we don't know where we are on that falling knife trajectory. <laughs> it could be the end. It could be the middle. It could be the very beginning and a uh, lookout below plunge and so forth. But you guys uh, have gone through this before. What changed? Because you, you started a policy, a bank on yourself designed whole life policy. And Alan Ekstrand, one of the founding members of bank on yourself, the professionals program connected with you guys. And folks, again, listen to episode 118 for all the details there where Alan and Dan talk about this. But for both of you as a, as a couple, what changed, not just on your net worth statement, you showed us the chart last time, and it's dramatic how in 2009, when you started your first policy, there was just a steady, predictable incline on your net worth chart. Now, that's fine for the chart lovers like you and me, Dan, but as a couple, as a family, what changed in the family? What changed in the marriage as you began to have some predictable and even guaranteed cash value increases each year? You know, we went into that very much, I would say, trying to have our eyes open. We weren't sure what Bank on Yourself really was. I had done a bunch of research, but we talked about it. And we said, and I said, like, this seems like it's too good to be true, but I can't figure out, you know, where the, where's the catch other than if you go into it and quit early, you're going to lose money, right? That, that's the only catch I could really find that it's a long-term commitment kind of thing. You know, so we started the first two policies, one on myself and one on Rebecca, at a size that we intentionally made them big enough so that they would, we would know if it was working. 
like it would matter, but small enough that if it was a total loss, that it wouldn't kill us. Because we, we got our feet wet. Yeah, we got yeah. our feet wet. And we, but we and then were, we jumped in. Yeah, then we, yeah. After it really seemed to be totally working exactly as everybody said it was going to, then we really dove in. I, I think that's a testament to both how careful we were in, in un, trying to understand it first and also our willingness to do something that feels right, you know, together. You know, how did it change it? I would say we felt like we had a long-term plan at that point that that we didn't have to keep guessing about what was going to happen from week to week. Yeah, it's interesting because our son, who's 26, um, he also has started his own policies. We have policies for all our kids where they're the insured. We're, we're still the policy owners, but he started his own policy also with Alan. He started his own bank on yourself journey. So it's you know, it's a generational thing. And then there's so many creative ways that you can use both the net cash value of the policy while it's enforced, but also the ultimate death benefit to create this kind of intergenerational continuing wealth, which is just a freedom for everyone in the whole family. Absolutely. Well, I want to tag back to something that you said early on in your comment there, Dan. You said that if there was a catch, it was the fact that if you close out your policy, early on, you lose money Mm -hmm. and that it takes some time for this thing to get going. There's some upfront costs. And the presenting reason that brought me like just, hey, I got to get Dan back on the show to talk about this with you was a comment you made and posted. It was a reply to a gentleman's post on the Not Your Average Financial Community. And a shameless plug, everybody, if you're not already on that membership site, you got to go check it out because there's some great conversations happening on there. Uh, It's uh, notyouraverage.mn.co. Dan is on there and you can see this discussion that we were having. He says, the only disadvantage I can see with bank on yourself is the cash value doesn't equal the contributions for like 10 years. Can somebody please explain why this is not a deal breaker? I realize there's a lot of advantages to these policies, which can make up for that disadvantage. And so I just tagged a few people to help bring some folks into the discussion. And Dan, you wrote a reply that I thought was just good enough for us to talk about on the podcast, because quite candidly, that's a legitimate objection or concern or what what have you. First of all, before I get into your reply on the membership site, how would you reply to him just on the face of it? What would you guys say? You've committed significant chunks of money and time to seeing these things grow. And if it's going to take you a long time for the cash value to equal what you paid into it, yeah, eight, nine, 10 years, maybe even for it to break even dollar for dollar, what's the point? Like, how do you overcome that problem? I'll just say, well, for you, you you saw it as an opportunity to, how can I figure this out? And, And you and your love of spreadsheets and graphs and stuff. So it was, you took it on as a challenge to, and did you even take it on a challenge? Like, I'm going to prove that this doesn't work That was early early on. We were kind of looking for something long-term that would pay off and that we knew for sure would pay off. Unlike stocks, that was more of a gamble. Yeah. I I, I guess too, that we, we had, we, we had the money that we could contribute to it too, to start out with. I mean, in, in, small amounts at first. And then as time went on, bigger and with more policies. Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I came to realize was that, yeah, there, it's going to be underwater 
right? As an investment, it's mm -hmm. underwater for some period of time. When we started it, when we started, it was seven years, and now it's more like nine or ten because the interest rate environment has changed. When you look at the the illustrations and you start doing an analysis when you're looking out 30 or 40 years, what you find is that the actual rate of return. And, and I use like a savings account kind of rate of return. If you had a savings account, what interest would it need to be paying from the beginning to get you to this balance at year 30 or whatever? We were seeing that the policies were returning about four and a half to five percent. That's a pre-tax number, right? So right. if you if you understand you're never going to pay taxes on that money, you know, it's like a seven percent, seven and a half percent kind of return. So if you could have a, a savings account that was giving you seven and a half percent, you know, would you put your money in there? And I mean, I'd run to that, of course. Yeah. So I mean that if you're getting interest or some kind of investment return, and it's in a taxable account, and you have to pay taxes on that money, then if you're getting four and a half percent or five percent, it's not really 5% because you've got to give 30% of it to the government. You know, it's actually less. It's, you know, 2%, yeah. you know, 3% or maybe another way to say that is to, to get an equivalent return on your whole life policy that might be giving you 5%. Let's say you'd need an 8% return in your 401k or IRA yep. to equal an after tax five, depending on your tax bracket. Is that kind of what I hear you saying? Yep, yep, that's All absolutely right. true. And if you're and if you're in a tax deferred account, it doesn't help you because you're still going to pay the taxes. And then all the flexibility that comes with the bank on yourself policy, you know, the fact that you can access the capital. Like if you bought a treasury, 30-year treasury bond or something, you can't turn around and use that money for something else at the same right. time, you know. Mm -hmm. So it it's it, you know, that flexibility is huge. But of course, the big answer to this is it's the death benefit, stupid, right? I mean, it's like, of course, it's not worth that much because from the day you sign the policy, if you know are victim of an unfortunate accident or become ill and, and pass, the insurance company is going to pay your beneficiaries a lot more than you put in, right? So mm -hmm. day one, your return on from investment, right? If you don't die is... 60% of what you put in, but the return on investment, if you do die, is like 2,500%. Right? That's right. Yeah. And those numbers start to equalize over time. And in fact, they become exactly equal when you turn 121. Essentially, on day one, when you start this policy, I'm going to read what you said here on this comment. It says, why is this not such a deal breaker? The main reason is I feel like because on day one that your policy goes in force, you truly achieve your financial plan. This is, of course, to due to many of the advantages, specifically the death benefit. But I'm also going to think about the cash value. If I know that I need two million bucks to live comfortably in my future, whatever that future might be at age 65 or 70 or whatever, I can look at my spreadsheet of my brand new, freshly printed policy that they sent me from the insurance company. And I can see my guaranteed cash value is going to be two million bucks. And so this means even though I've got some upfront cost at certain age, 65 or 70, whatever age I want, I can see my guaranteed cash value has accumulated to my goal. Hooray, we just won the day, right? We just met our goal on day one of our financial journey. I'm not sure of any other financial tool that on day one, I can truly achieve, as you said on the comment there, Dan, that I can truly achieve my financial plan. Now, the death benefit is obviously there if I 
croak early, but if I live long enough and I'm hoping to, and I'm hoping everyone listening to this does as well, guaranteed you hit a certain target number on that cash value. And at every point along the way, you know exactly what your net worth is going to be. So again, I, I'd like to ask you, Rebecca, and I know that we've got a spreadsheet nerd on this podcast, and then we've got a normal human being with us as well. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. You're both wonderful people, but we've got two spreadsheet nerds and then a, a normal person on the call here. So Rebecca, what's it like to know that, hey, all right, if nothing else, we have a stop loss on our negative downturns, right? Like there's never going to be a, a day when our stock market is going to take away money we cannot afford to lose. What is it that most people don't realize about this? Those that don't have these policies yet, it's comforting because I think in the long term, not to dwell on the death benefit, but we we feel also that we're okay as we get older, but also that our kids are going to be okay. And there's a lot of comfort in that, I think, knowing that we'll be able to retire sometime. So yeah, and again, I think back to that experience of the money we had lost in the stock market feels like we have more, we have control. We, you know, we're in control. And we know we can always access the money, even though it's, you know, saved for retirement. And right? mm -hmm. It's like a credit card. You're your own credit card company in some ways. You're not paying those fees to anyone else. You're making the interest off of your own money. We were making money off our money. It wasn't going elsewhere. Yeah, that's, that's incredibly important because we're all going to need to buy stuff anyway. And so to make money on your money, to allow that money to continue to compound even while you access it for the boat or the car or whatever else you might need to buy, that's great. One of the questions that someone once posed to me was, well, Mark, why should I do this if it takes years to break even? And we looked at it and it's true. Somewhere between seven and 10 years is pretty typical. 10 is as far out as I think I've ever seen it. It, it is still somewhere in that seven to eight to nine years range, like you say, Dan. There's kind of two break-even points. And a colleague of Alan's, uh, Debbie Wilder, told me about this. And it's true. The first break-even is about year three to four, mm -hmm. where you're putting in 10 grand in year one. And you know, in year one, let's say you put in 10,000 bucks, the cash value is going to be somewhere around 6,500 to 8,000 bucks, somewhere in that 6,500 to $8,000. And so that means we lost some money in that first year. And that is why, because there was a death benefit we purchased for, let's just say 300 grand or something or more. And the next year though, we put another 10,000 in and now the cash value has gone up by 8,500 bucks it's increased by 8,500 bucks. So you've got last year's seven grand plus another 8,500. So now you've got, let's just say 15,500 bucks in year two, you get the story somewhere around year four, you put another 10,000 in and now the policy's cash value has increased by, you guessed it, 11,000 bucks, let's say. Yeah. So now we've got our first break even. This is where the policy is now growing faster than you can contribute to it. And that will be the case for the rest of our lives. So far, so good guys. Yep. Yep. Okay. So then we've got to fill in the divot from years one, two, and three. So years five, six, and seven or so are really just filling in the costs that we incurred in the first three or four years. Therefore, we break even around year seven or eight or nine or so. So there's no surprise there. The thing that I wanted to get to was compared to what? These policies cost and they take years to break even, but are they great? Are they still a good deal? Well, compared to what? There's always startup costs with everything. And, you know, it's easy for people to look at that. And then they think about the cash flow that it's going to generate, which is the right thing to think about. And they think about the appreciation of the asset. 
which is a hope, not a guarantee, but, and that's the right thing to think about. And that makes the startup cost worth it. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the same with bank on yourself, because what you're looking at is the growth that you're going to see that you can see in the illustration. And then you, you calculate, which is what I did, what kind of savings account would you need to get that? And then what, what are you, because you've never paying taxes on any of that gain, what does that really equate to? And it equates to seven, seven and a half percent return on your money, which why wouldn't you? Who cares about the first 10 years that it's less? Because if you, you don't, you don't need it then. First of all, you're right. not going to cash it out then. And if you really cash out in terms of passing on, it doesn't matter because you're getting the death benefit, not the cash value. So that's far, far greater than what you've put in. And when you get further you know, along, it's doing exactly what it said it was going to do. So it's just like saying, well, I have to have my closing costs and I have to have my property taxes. And I have to do these repairs, but I'm going to generate this great you know, cash flow later. Okay. Same thing with bank on yourself. You have this you know, startup cost, but even then you've got the death benefit from that moment forward. And mm-hmm. you're, you're on this path to this, you know, seven and a half percent savings account, basically. Yep. Yep. And, you know, there's so many other things that, you know, honestly are silly when you start to think about it. Do we cut out the, the, do we lower the price and cut out the value on the rest of our life? I mean, you know, we could buy a bicycle and invest the difference. We could, you know, skip the kids, buy a goldfish and invest the difference. We could, you know, we could, do we always think it's a smart idea to uh, get rid of the value to just reduce price at all costs? No, we understand that there's a long-term benefit to raising children. There's a long-term benefit to getting in an airplane. I mean, it's way more efficient to drive your car a mile or two uh, than it is to get in an airplane to fly a mile or two. No one flies their airplane to the grocery store at least nobody I talk to, <laughs> maybe the ultra billionaires fly their airplane to the grocery store, but, but we all know that it's much more efficient to get in that airplane as, as, as wasteful as it is those first few miles, it's way more efficient to go cross country on an airplane than it is to get in your car and drive. Uh, so why wouldn't it be the same with a long-term financial vehicle like whole life insurance? Now, if we're comparing day trading or meme stocks with whole life insurance, of course, there's, uh, we're playing different games at that point. But one thing I just appreciate about both of you is you see your financial plan is not just a get rich for this Saturday kind of experience. It's a, it's not even just about your lives. I'm hearing you talk about the death benefit and policies on your children. And I assume you're looking, as you said, intergenerationally, you guys are seeing this long-term. Can you speak a bit more about that? My mother, uh, grew up in New Hampshire and, and basically grew up on what was originally a farm. And it had been in her family since the early 1800s. There was a, a period of time when a lot of the land got sold off to pay taxes and, and things like that. And she didn't want ever for anyone to be in a position where they would have to sell the property because they couldn't afford the taxes or the maintenance or whatever. So rather than just leaving the property to my brother and I, she wanted to leave the property and basically an endowment to make sure that the property could always stay in the family. And she wanted that to be large enough that it would be self-sustaining and, you know, so that forever and ever and ever that property could stay in the family. And I said to her, this was at the time, a few years ago when um, mortgage rates were incredibly low. They're still historically low, but I'm talking about like really low. And I said, that property is totally paid off. Why don't you take a mortgage? 
a couple hundred thousand dollars, buy a single premium policy on yourself, and then it's done. Like at that point, you have to pay the mortgage and the mortgage payments won't be very big. And I said, you can borrow out of the policy to pay the mortgage payments if you have to. And But I figured she'd just pay them out of cash flow, which is what she ended up doing. And I said, at that point, when you pass on, the death benefit is going to be so big, it will pay off the mortgage first and fund this, this endowment that you're looking for. And we had a meeting with her financial advisors. I make it sound like it's some big firm. It's like two guys in Maine. But she had me in the room on the speakerphone and they were saying, you know, I, we get it, you know, it'll, it'll work. But the return isn't very good. We can get a much better return in the stock market. She asked them two questions. She said, can you guarantee what that return is going to be? And, and of course, they couldn't say yes to that. And the other thing she said is, if I go with your plan, but then I die next year, how much is there going to be for the house? And they said, well, like $30,000 or some small number. I don't know. And uh, and she said, but in this plan, if I die next year, there's like $300,000 after the mortgage is paid off. And they're like, and she said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like I'm doing the, I'm doing the policy mm-hmm. because she knew that the day she got that policy, the thing that she had been thinking she would have to build over many years was built. She achieved her financial plan on day one. Yeah. Yep. Sounds familiar. Yeah. And it's and it's done. I think there's a meme waiting to happen there, Dan. And it's done. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, where is it written that we have to make this money thing so complex where we're hanging our hats on risk and turbulence and volatility and you know political snafus and, and uh, things that we can't control? If we can just sign one sheet of paper where it is guaranteed and and it's done and it's done. And for those that are thinking long range, it works and it works tremendously, but it'll fail if you see this like a get rich overnight strategy, right? Any final comments, guys, to those that are still trying to figure this whole thing out and wrestling with those upfront expenses or costs? You guys have been through those upfront expenses and costs enough now. Um, what would you have to say for those to those that are still kind of kicking the tires? I would say take the leap, right? Have the faith. Talk to other people who've been through this before. Don't just take our word for it. Yeah, um, that's what we did. We, we talked to other yeah. people, and if you if you need to make a quick buck in the next three years, this is not for you. <laughs> but if you're trying to kind of set up your your path for the rest of your life and for the future, it's fantastically reliable and incredibly flexible. And that's, you know, what really surprised me was how flexible it is. I can tell you that every month that the rolling 12 month average of our, of our gains on our 13 policies is going up and it's, it's very significant at this point. And we're still early after it's crossed that bar. It's it's getting better and better every month and will continue every month and every year and every decade. It's incredible. Love it. It's true. Yeah. It's true. And, and I, I always love a challenge and I always love a financial challenge and I love to save money. And uh, we set up some really aggressive policies early on. And Alan was like, you're never going to max out that paid up edition. And we managed to find ways to do it. And and we've done it right every time. But yeah, it's also very freeing to know that it's okay to spend money too. 
Well, you guys are an example to many people. So thank you too for not only your story with Bank on Yourself, which is awesome, and your your thoughtful intelligence and your emotional acumen to kind of get through those upfront costs and take that gut punch that every person takes when they're buying a house or buying a policy or any kind of upfront expense. You guys are an example of long-term thinking that I think is sorely lacking in our world today. So thank you guys both for coming on the show. Uh, if folks want to reach out to, to you both, you can find these wonderful folks on notyouraverage.mn.co. That's our membership site, notyouraverage.mn.co. And you can see us all having lots of great banter and conversations, helping us all thinking long range is what we're all about. So uh, thank you, Dan and Rebecca, for coming on. If anyone wants to tag me on the membership site, hopefully I'll see it and get back to you. It was fun to be on this. So thanks for having us and asking for a normal person or an average person. <laughs> hey, you're, you're, you're not so average in a good way, you know? <laughs> so, that's great. Thanks guys for coming on. Thank you. Wow. What a great interview. Thank you, Dan and Rebecca for coming on the show. You know, what really struck me was what Dan said again in his comment. And again, in the episode today, he said on day one, on day one, I've already met my financial plan. Wow, that is powerful. Amongst all of the things that we cannot control, it's so nice to know that on day one, when you first start your first day of your first policy, you've met your financial plan. That is so cool. No matter what happens to the rest of your financial life, guaranteed what your cash value will be this year, next year, and at every point along the way. I think you're going to be floored with what whole life insurance can do for your financial future. So reach out to us at notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com and click on request a meeting. We'd be happy to sit down and go over some of these numbers with you. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your long-term future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.